This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The Sum of Us is the name of her podcast. The Sum of Us is the name of her book as well, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather, thank you for making the time to join us. Can you just give the audience, before we get started and before we send them to your podcast, which you can get wherever it is you get your podcast, again, the name of it is The Sum of Us, your history, before you get to the book writing and the podcast, as an organizer, as somebody who is trying to work in her community to change America. Can you just go through some of your biography on how we got to the book writing? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks so much for having me on, Dan. I um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the 1980s uh, in a solidly working middle-class Black neighborhood. And I saw what began to happen as, you know, the jobs began to be shipped overseas and the factories closed. And it was really clear that some neighborhoods were doing really well and having new parks and schools and everything was beautiful and shiny. And the parks and schools around us were falling into disrepair. And I was just the kind of kid who who asked why. And it led me into a career eventually to law school in public policy, where I was using research and statistical analysis and organizing and advocacy, going on shows like Meet the Press, testifying in Congress, drafting legislation, all focused on our economy. The big question, right? Why is it? It seems like we can't have nice things in America, right? And by nice things, I don't mean like hovercraft backpacks like we were promised, although those would still be nice. I mean things like childcare and paid family leave and wages that keep workers out of poverty in a well-funded school in every neighborhood. I was really focused on inequality. And I realized that research, statistical analysis, trying to make good arguments about why we should do better things in the interest of more people it wasn't really working because it wasn't that we didn't have the solutions for some of these big problems in society. It was that we couldn't come together to fight for them. It's not that the system sort of requires inequality. (laughs) The system as it is, of course, requires inequality. And listen, I'm not saying everybody has to have the exact same amount of money. You know, I know, I know that those kinds of systems don't work as you do very well, but I also, the kind of stuff where, you know, a worker is paid seven twenty-five an hour, and their boss is paid ten thousand dollars an hour. You know, where half of American families are paid too little to meet their basic needs for things like housing and food in one of the richest countries in the world. That is just too much, right? It's excessive inequality, and it's betraying the idea of work, um, and it's not the American dream, right? We used to do a lot better for more families, and so I really wanted to kind of get out of, you know, the sort of beltway idea of of what was going on and hit the road. And I did over the course of three years and a journey that took me to writing The Sum of Us, the book, which is about racism's economic costs to all of us, basically saying it's not just about people of color like myself. It's actually that racism is so distorting to our systems. It makes it hard for people to come together and fight for the things that we all need. And so it ultimately ends up having a cost for everyone. What'd you learn? You know, the biggest, like 
mind-blowing experience I had on the course of writing the book was a trip that I took to Montgomery, Alabama, Dan, where I was with my baby and I want to go to a park. And I went to the park and I noticed that in the middle of the park, it's sort of like the central park of Montgomery, there was this really big, flat, wide expanse of grass. It was just sort of empty. And it's like two, almost two football fields long. And I was like, what? what's going on here? Why is it just this big, empty field? And I learned by talking to someone there that 10 feet buried under my feet was the carcass of what used to be a thousand plus capacity swimming pool that was a public pool that was built in the 1930s as part of this building boom of public goods, uh, roads and bridges and libraries and parks and schools and these pools and these kind of grand resort style pools, I would later learn used to, we used to have almost 2000 of them in the country. It was like a, a feature of the American landscape. And they were usually, like they were in Montgomery, segregated, right? In Montgomery, they, you know, it was Jim Crow. There was a whites only sign. But, you know, in places like Boston and Chicago and, and Washington State, it was just by custom for whites only. And it would be enforced through intimidation and violence. And what I learned was that this history of what happened to the Montgomery pool, the way it was destroyed, literally they drained out the water and seeded it over with grass and filled it in with, with gravel. That happened all over the country. And it happened in the 1960s, early 60s, late 50s. Why? Because of civil rights. Because when Black families were finally able to successfully sue and say, you know what, those are our tax dollars that have been funding those public swimming pools all along, and, and we want our kids to swim too, and courts sided with them, places like Montgomery, but also places in New Jersey and California and Ohio said, we'd rather drain our public swimming pools than allow Black children and families to swim too. And, you know, Dan, it's it's a devastating story. I, I talk to people who remember the days that the trucks rolled in. And it for me, it's a symbol of what a people who've been taught for so long that there's something wrong with a, an other, right? A racialized other. What they're willing to do sometimes to just make sure that they still feel better than. If you've been taught that there's something wrong with poor people, with people of color, you'll go to extraordinary lengths to avoid sharing things with them, avoid being on the same plane with them, even if that means destroying something that you once prized. And for me, the drained pool, I'm not like a swimming expert, right? That's not actually what I care the most about. I care about the economy, but it, it, it came to be a metaphor for so many things that we used to have um, public policies and public goods like uh, affordable housing and low um, and the investment in in schools, right? In the idea of a free college, which we had for most of the 20th century, grants, not loans. Um, healthcare should be a public good and it's not in the United States. And, and a big part of that is because of racism in our politics, in our policymaking that leads us to pull away from one another and not find ways to solve together problems that all of our families are struggling with. How much stuff like that did you learn? I, because I know after George Floyd, all of a sudden, I became informed on things like, wait a minute, what do you mean a black town or economy is at the bottom of a lake? Yeah. What do you, what do you mean that that's a thing that we did as a country? I mean, so many things, Dan. You know, and listen, I, I 
had a career in economic policy. It was my job to know about the economy. I'm a black woman. You know, it's my birthright and my family's lore to know about race and racism. And still, I learned so much. Did you know, for example, that Social Security, right, one of those public goods from the 30s and 40s, it was, you know, a huge, huge benefit and, and a breakthrough and is still today, keeps millions of seniors out of poverty. And when it was passed, it excluded by design the two job categories that most Black workers were in, in a compromise with the Southern delegation to Congress, domestic work and agricultural work, so that only Black people would still have to work until they died in poverty. So that's something I didn't know. It's like a, a whites-only pool. That's what Social Security was. Even the very American dream of home ownership, which was really brought to us by public policy, right? It was government-sponsored, regulated, designed, and insured mortgages, which was a kind of radical idea, right? That like a, a factory worker could pay a little bit off every month over time and have this asset that would appreciate over generations, create this intergenerational wealth, right? It's like the bedrock, the foundation of the American dream. And yet, the New Deal government, right, Roosevelt coming out of the Depression, made this massive investment in housing, tripled the home ownership rate, and yet based all of that policy on a never substantiated assumption that Black people would be too much of a credit risk. And so what did they do? The government required any kind of private developer that was building homes to include racial covenants, agreements that it would only be sold to people this is the quote, holy of the Caucasian race. And they're not just doing that in Montgomery, Alabama. They're doing that in California, in New York State, in Illinois. They drew maps of the whole country and surveyed them like block to block and said, well, this neighborhood has a high Negro concentration. It is hazardous for lending. Do not lend. And that's why today we have the effects of that exclusion from the wealth generating subsidies of the 20th century. And so that today, no matter what your income, there's a huge black-white wealth divide. And what do I mean by that? I mean like assets, home ownership, retirement savings, stocks and bonds, the kind of stuff that isn't about your paycheck. It's your security, right? It's your nest egg. And today, a black college graduate, Dan, has less household wealth on average than a white high school dropout. So you can drop out of high school as a white person and still have more to fall back on, still likely to be in a family where somebody owns a house or to have had some sort of inheritance or some stocks and bonds and be wealthier than someone who, a black person who went through college. And that's because of how history shows up in your wallet. So these are the kinds of things that I learned on my journey. But the thing about why I wanted so much to get out on the road and travel. And I went from, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, California, rural Maine, and I did it again for the podcast because I wanted to talk to everyday people, white, black, brown, Asian, indigenous, who, who were trying to make an America that works for all of us, who are trying to get over this history, that weren't afraid of learning it, you know, and were on their own journeys, as so many people have been since the murder of George Floyd and the, the biggest social demonstration 
movement in American history that summer of 2020. On my journey, I met a guy named Matt, who is a white mountain biker, right? Like a mountain biker, mountain climber, Santa Cruz surfer, right? You're like typical kind of outdoors guy, right? Uh, his job is he's an electrician, so he climbs poles. Like he just loves to be outside. And he, when he learned about Ahmad Aubrey's killing, right? He just, something snapped in him. It was like, I can't believe that that could happen today. And I can picture myself taking a jog and suddenly having somebody pull up in a pickup truck and run me down and, and fear for my life in that way. And he decided to found a group called Writers Against Racism. And he learned that in one of the places he likes to go and, and you know, mountain bike, there's still a siren, like a, an air raid siren, a loud air raid siren that sounds in the evening. And it was originally to tell the indigenous people in the community that they had to get out of town by sundown or else be beaten and arrested. And that idea of like a sundown town where black people, indigenous people were not allowed to be after sunset, they could come into work during the day, but they sure couldn't let the sun set on them, you know, it happened all over this country. But today in rural Nevada, there's still like an air raid siren that you know, the rural white folks who live in Minden, this town, they were like, it's tradition, you know, I, maybe that used to be what it's about, but it's not what it's about today. But of course, when indigenous people hear it, they remember when their father and their grandfather was beaten. They remember, it's a daily reminder that the land that they, their ancestors, you know, cultivated for generations, for thousands of years is no longer welcoming to them. And, and so he started a campaign to try to silence that siren. That's a story that we tell in an episode of the podcast, which is available now on Spotify. Um, and it'll be available wherever podcasts are streamed um, in a few weeks on after September 21st. And it's like those stories of, of a person who's just going about his life and discovered some piece of America that's broken. And he joined up with an indigenous guy named Marty to try to fix it. Those kind of stories are happening all over the place, Dan, and I think we don't hear them enough. And so the Some of Us podcast is nine different stories of places across the country where people are coming together across lines of race, a Somali farmer and a white multi-generational dairy farmer in rural Maine. The episode that comes out today is about a surfing and the ocean and how in Manhattan Beach, California, there used to be a black resort at the turn of the last century that was taken away by the city in a racially motivated act because they just didn't want black people in the city that this black family had helped to found in Manhattan Beach, California. It's one of the big surf spots uh, of the South Bay. And it's I don't want to give it away, but there's an amazing story there of what happened when a group of people got together and said, you know what, that was wrong, what happened a hundred years ago. And, and we want to give the family back, the family back, the land that was taken away unjustly. And I went surfing for that story, which was so fun. It's like my fifth time surfing and I was able to get up and it was just so, so cool. And I was surrounded by black surfers and it's, it's a joyful podcast because each story is a story of hope and of Americans coming together across their differences to make things better for all of us. Is the book joyful? <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people say it's like surprisingly hopeful. I try to end every chapter with hope. I'm a I'm a very hopeful person. Um, so I think it's probably the most hopeful 
inspiring book that is dead-eyed, steel-eyed about racism that you're going to find, right? Someone called it a page turner about racism, right? (laughs) Which is, you know, um, I wanted to write The Some of Us so that people would learn things that they didn't know. People would understand the economy that impacts all of us, right? Um, Why we don't have healthcare, why there's $2 trillion in student debt, why our schools are so unequal and why we have to spend tens of thousands of dollars more to get into a good school district? Why can't there be well-funded school districts in every neighborhood? Why are we not stopping the climate crisis that um, is all around us? And, and in so many ways, it comes down to racism in our politics and our policymaking, this sort of drained pool politics, this zero-sum way of looking at the world, this fear that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense And yet, in every single chapter, every story that I tell in the book, there's a hopeful ending because in some ways it's it makes some of our problems kind of simpler to say you know there's this common thread of of racism of this false belief that we're so different and that some groups of people are better than others and this fear of each other this resentment of each other and if we could just pull that common thread it might be actually quite simple for us to all have nice things. And so I try to tell a story of of people doing just that and winning nice things in their community in each of the chapters of the book and in the podcast. Take me through what you're calling the journey of writing the book. How do you decide to give three years of your life to a project (laughs) like this? It's a, it's a substantive undertaking. Yeah, it was. I mean, to be honest, um, it was frustration, right? Here I was, I had started uh, working at a think tank uh, in my career when I was 22, an entry-level staffer, and I'd worked my way up to running the organization. And, you know, it was my job to go on Bill Maher and meet the press and talk about inequality. It was my job to uh, draft legislation and testify in Congress. And I wasn't asking, you know, my organization wasn't asking for the sun and the moon and the stars, we were asking to raise the minimum wage above $7.25 an hour, which it still sits at, at a federal level, right? We were asking for things like to return to a system of debt-free college, because we know that what we invest as a community in college, we get back in economic growth four to one, right? And yet it wasn't happening. Um, This was you know, almost eight years ago now, I just felt this, these headwinds, right? These invisible headwinds. And I just felt like what I was doing wasn't working. And so it was a real sense of frustration. Like I still care about these issues so much. And yet we seem to keep self-sabotaging. And it was 2017, there was a new administration. I was pregnant, to be honest, Dan, that was, I think a piece of it. It was like, okay, like, this is serious. I'm going to bring a kid into this world. Like, I I can't keep, you know, doing what I've been doing uh, and have it not make enough progress quickly enough. And so I decided that I needed to learn different things that I learned. I knew economics, I knew law, but I didn't know sociology. Um, I didn't know enough history. I didn't know kind of like the quote unquote softer sciences. And I just hadn't been around the country enough. I hadn't talked to enough people um, who were trying to figure out their way in this, you know, diverse society of ours. And so I loaded up my Kindle. I, you know, checked out books from the library. We took my husband and I, and, you know, over time, my newborn son, we went on all of these trips. We did an RV trip at one point. We took a van. We took our, we bought a car. We flew a bunch. I would ask organizers I knew 
religious people, grassroots organizers, union organizers, just really connected people in their community, some journalists. You know, who should I talk to in Kansas? Who should I talk to in Maine? And I just began to see this pattern forming, this this phenomenon of the zero-sum mindset, the idea that, you know, it's not like a normal sports game, right, where the economy should be like a normal sports game, like economists think of it as a sports game where, you know, you want all your players on the field scoring points for your team. Um, you don't want anyone sidelined due to debt, discrimination, disadvantage, right? And yet, for some reason, there are too many people in the country that see our society not like a normal game, but rather like a zero-sum game where there are opposing sides. And if one team scores one point, um, another team has to lose a point. And it's this idea that we're not all on the same team. And and that's what the zero-sum idea was. And I learned by, you know, because I read a bunch of research reports and then I talked to the professors who wrote them, that many people view our society through that zero sum lens. And in fact, white people are far more likely to think that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. Generally speaking, folks of color don't think that our progress has to come at white folks' expense. And when I learned about the zero sum, I was like, okay, this doesn't make economic sense, but it does make a sort of cultural sense. Like I do see people reacting that way, being really pissed off that $10,000 of student loan debt um, is going to be canceled. And it's like, well, that's, it's not coming out of your pocket. It's, it's good for, you know, our overall economy for people to not be, you know, spending money looking backwards, but be able to start businesses and own homes. And, and this was a weird experiment where we loaded people down with debt. Why wouldn't we want people on our team, right? The, this generation of Americans to, to thrive. Why are we mad that they're a little less miserable? And yet that ends up being the dynamic, that zero sum like resentment. So that was a big aha. And then, as I said, the drained pool story was an aha. And then I kept seeing people like bucking those trends, Dan. I kept seeing people, you know, a white worker, a fast food worker, right? Paid $7.25 an hour in Kansas City who, you know, grew up kind of thinking pretty conservatively, you know, feeling very much like immigrants are taking our jobs and Black people are lazy and, and all of that rhetoric. Her name is Bridget. And she told me that once she started, she was approached by another um, fast food worker who said, you know, we're, we're going to try to win $15 an hour in a union. And she was like, well, that's crazy. They're never going to pay people like me $15 an hour, you know. And then she went to the first meeting because she wanted the free pizza, right? Um, we tell her story in the podcast as well, an episode called Flipping Burgers. And once she heard, went into a room with all these different people from Kansas City where she worked, but who were all struggling the same way she was, you know, she was married with three kids, both parents worked minimum wage jobs, always struggling to keep the lights on and keep food on the table. She realized that it could be better. And that these people who were crowded into this church with her were going to fight for her and for her children. And it changed her because that wasn't just white people in that room. 
right? It was black people and brown people. And now she says, you know, I used to think it was us versus them. And now I know in order for us to come up, they've got to come up too, because as long as we're divided, we're conquered. She told me, she said, racism is bad for white workers too, because it keeps us divided from our black and brown brothers and sisters, you know? And, and so that's how I, the book came together. It was from talking to people who were living their lives and seeing how racism has a cost for everyone and how if we can come together, life can be better for all of us. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Do you set out with a publisher in advance? Uh, like how yeah. much fear? How much fear was there? Because <laughs> yeah, it's, pretty, it's a pretty substantive investment that you're making to follow your frustrations. Yeah, that's a really good question, Dad. So, um, so I had I was sort of a little bit into my journey when it started to come together, and I say, okay, and I said, okay, this is a book, right? Like this is actually an idea. I think this is a book. And so I did, I worked on a book proposal, which is, you know, like 40 or 50 pages where you outline the basic argument. There was a lot that I was starting to pull together, but a lot I didn't know. And I said, I, I'm I go bet you the journey. book doesn't look much like, like that outline. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I sent it to one person who's um, this guy named Chris Jackson, who is uh, uh, at the time he was the only black man in publishing with his own imprint, which is like, the you know, the, of course, like many corporations publishing, you know, there's like three public, there's three corporations that own publishing, but there's lots of different imprints within them. And he had his own, his name is Chris Jackson. It's called One World. And I was so nervous. I'd never, this is my first book, my only book, but he really got it. Like he really was like, this is something that we haven't 
talked about enough how racism is bad for everyone. And so he said, I'm going to fund, you know, you to keep going on this journey. I'm going to give you an advance. And that was good because I had a baby and, you know, um, and then I kept going. Yeah. Not only that, though, it sounds like you were doing family stuff, marital stuff. You were seeing America. You were learning. It sounds like you were having some balance in your life as you worked yeah. toward a dream project. Yeah, Dan, that's right. I mean, when I was running a nonprofit organization, you know, I would wake up and look at my calendar and it was like back to back to back to back to back. Um, and I I grew up um, with a single mom who was a workaholic like I am. And I, I to be honest, didn't didn't want, I wanted to see my kid for the first couple of years of his life, right? And I, um, if I was working in the way I was, um, when I was running an organization, I wouldn't have. And so what was great about the book writing process is I got to strap him on me and take him, you know, with me on this journey and, you know, put his little bouncy seat at the foot of my desk while I was writing. And, you know, he's, He's he's got frequent flyer miles already. <laughs> you know? And you finish writing the book you you in the in November of 2020 you mentioned George yeah. Floyd. Yeah. So if you're trying to write a hopeful book and that ends up going from an unbelievably dark thing to feeling hopeful, yeah. to it doesn't quite feel that way anymore. Oh man. Um yeah, I finished writing the book in November 2020. Um like, I was like, okay, you know, it was published in January. So November, 2020, the summer had happened, you know, an explosion of conversations about race and racism, all of these commitments from big corporations, all of these people um, learning more and, and making commitments in their communities. And then um, the election happens, the elections called for Biden. It felt like we had sort of, you know, rejected the politics of divide and conquer. And then, um, the book was being printed. And by the time it was out in the second week of January, January 6th, it happened. And literally the, the very idea that I talk about in the book, this zero sum, like we would rather destroy something than share it with people that we think are, are, are on the other team, right? Um, was what researchers would then subsequently find out was sort of the, the animating idea behind the insurrectionists of January 6th. It was like the great replacement, like people of color are taking something that's ours. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've got to fight to take it back. Um, and, you know, it did sort of just feel like, you know, the pandemic and, and all the sort of attacks on like, you know, banning books and these attacks on our children's freedom to learn. It felt like, there was a little bit of that hope that was starting to be extinguished. And, um, you know, I'm a, frankly, I'm a, I'm a mother and, and the idea of being forced to carry a child to term and either give it up for adoption or raise it without the resources uh, that I know that I need to do that is terrifying, right? So the Supreme Court decision this year, you know, I mean, there are so many reasons to despair. And to be honest, I... I released the book in 2021. By the fall, I was like, I got to get back out on the road. Um, I'm, I'm going crazy in my house. I am losing the sense of hope that I had when I was talking to real people all across the country. And so that's when I brought the idea of the podcast around to producers because I was like, let's, what if, what if we, you know, just focused on 
the idea that ends each chapter and that ends the book, which is the idea of um, what I call a solidarity dividend, right? The idea that we can actually win, gain things, and sometimes like actual money, more pay, better funded schools. Sometimes it's things like cleaner air. Um, if we come together in cross-racial solidarity, like the hopeful part of the book, it, it's the part of the book that most readers are like, this this is what I want to know more about. Um, and so I said, why don't I just go back on the road and focus only on those kinds of hopeful stories? And so that's what I did. Um, that's what the podcast is. Each story is a hopeful story of people coming together to unlock a solidarity dividend. And I am now um, like, six weeks after my last trip for the podcast back in that hopeful space. I think we're going to make it, Dan. <laughs> I well, think. Given your experiences, I don't really understand why you're hopeful. I don't, I'm, I'm confused by your hope. I don't know why your hope is so indefatigable. It should be gone by now. <laughs> I'm hopeful because I know that decisions made the world that we're in right now and better decisions can make a better world. I'm hopeful because I know that the people who are paid to be politicians in Washington and in our state houses, they have incentives that are not the same as me and my neighbors. And, you know, I'm hopeful because I talk to people, um, you know, like a, a, a white dairy farmer uh, named Charlie from rural Maine. Maine is the whitest state in the nation, right? He's a third generation dairy farmer. And he happens to live near a small town called Lewiston, which is the town that Tucker Carlson often talks about as having been the uh, settlement home for a whole bunch of refugees from Somalia after the Somali civil war. And I look at the town of Lewiston and I see a dying mill town um, that had been totally abandoned by big corporations seeking cheaper labor overseas. And the main street was boarded up and, you know, everything was in a downward spiral. It's a story that, you know, deindustrialized neighborhoods and, and communities know all over the place. Frankly, it was what was happening to the south side of Chicago when I was growing up. And I see that actually the 7,000 Somali people who ended up coming in there over a decade took those boards down from the shops on the main street and they opened up restaurants and cafes and made jobs and they refilled the vacant apartment buildings and brought more students into the high school and brought the high school to the state championships and Charlie the farmer he wanted to sell his land, his farm, because there's a huge crisis in American farming, as we know, because um, frankly, because corporations are squeezing um, farmers and not paying enough. Um, and yet he wanted to keep his farm as an organic land, right? He didn't want to sell it to a developer for solar or to make a housing development or a trailer park. And he couldn't find any young farmers who had half a million dollars sitting around to go into this business. And what he ended up finding was a group of Somali Bantu. It's like a, it's an ethnic community within the Somali people who were always the farmers back home in Somalia and had come and were working in factories and shops, but loved farming and it was in their blood. And they formed a collective and together were able to raise money to buy the farm. And so instead of passing it to one struggling, another struggling, you know, probably white main family, he was able to pass it to a collective of 200 Somali farmers who are now keeping that land in organic farming um, 
for, you know, more generations. So like little stories like that and, you know, how Charlie had to learn and shift and, and get comfortable with these new neighbors, those kinds of stories make me hopeful. Um, you know, this country has never been only defined by its worst moments and its worst people. It has always been a collision of cultures that has made something new that has been fueled by people's hopes and dreams and ambitions. And just like there's a part of us that sees each other as the enemy that resents each other's progress, I think there's a stronger part of us that wants each other to succeed, that knows that we can't do it on our own, and that's willing to change. You mentioned a couple of times the south side of Chicago. What are the reasons for hope there? Hmm. You know, I think the reasons for hope on the south side of Chicago um, are that a young generation that grew up with the the chaos that has been caused by by gangs, but also by really misguided policies that were meant to destroy the gangs, but actually just broke up the sort of social networks and the families that, you know, make a community. Um, that young people who have grown up seeing what happens when it's sheer chaos, right? It's a new generation now that um, is is rejecting it, is saying that um, it's time for something different. There are extraordinary young people uh, on the south side of Chicago um, who are really focused on doing something good in their community, on reviving the long, beautiful legacy of Black entrepreneurship and Black civic participation and social justice. That is the legacy of the South Side that, that I know, um, and who are willing to hold politicians and big business accountable um, for investing in their community again. And they're saying, let's do this together. Um, I've actually met some extraordinary leaders on the South Side and they're younger, right? It feels like there's a generational shift that's happening. Can you articulate for me the frustration or why and how you arrived at the frustration of, I'm trying to instigate social change by dedicating my life to working with groups that activate change and I'm failing? <laughs> it felt like, it is so obvious that the minimum wage should be high enough to keep a family out of poverty, right? It is so obvious that if we're going to have both parents working, there needs to be some support for childcare, right? It was this feeling like it's so obvious. It's so clearly in our best interest. And yet, we bring these ideas to Washington. We we run the economic numbers. We say, look, it's going to help grow the economy. Isn't that what you care about? It's going to, you know, create jobs. Isn't that what you care about? And there would just be this shrug, you know, this like total disconnect between the people with the power to make the rules and the people who were living under them. You know, half of the Senate is millionaires, right? Um, and half of the country can't meet their basic needs, right? And so it just felt like there was this huge disconnect and that ultimately, and I'm going to be blunt here, Dan, the majority of white voters since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, right, since the Civil Rights Movement days, have voted against the party of the New Deal and the Civil Rights 
movement um, and, uh, you know, in Johnson's party, right? The majority of white voters have voted against the party that says they want to raise the minimum wage and do the right thing on, you know, student debt and health care and child care and paid family leave and all these things that would just make most families, white, black and brown's lives better. And it just felt like, well, well, why? Right. What is it? I know that the largest group of the uninsured is white people. And yet the majority of white people have been against this modest healthcare reform called Obamacare since it was passed. Why? Right. Um, the majority of white people, the, um, the people who are in poverty, living in poverty in the country, the largest share are white. And yet the majority of white voters support a par- party that's opposed to raising the minimum wage, that is opposed to having more unions and things that would help people be able to um, not work all day and come home in poverty. So I was, it was like, why? Why can't we just come together and address some of the things that we know need to happen. And some things are harder, right? Some things are more, um, we've got more work to do, but it just felt like there was all this low hanging fruit. Um, And I wanted to know, you know, to be honest, like what, what was going on in with white Americans who, who really saw me and my family as so different that they didn't want to join in common cause. Um, that they would be susceptible to, you know, corporate bullies in the paid media saying that, you know, we are what's wrong with America. Um, but I also just wanted to know what was going on with people who kind of had given up hope on better jobs and better communities. So that was the frustration. Her podcast, The Sum of Us, you can get it wherever you get your podcast. The book is The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and how we can prosper together. Have you had more impact with these projects than you have with your work in the community? Man, that's such a good question. So I think you need laws to change, you need policy to change, but I also think you need hearts and minds to change in order to to make that happen. Um, And I do think, you know, the book was on the bestseller list for 10 weeks, The, the podcast is, is reaching lots of audiences. Um, People have told me that it's changed the way they see the world. Um, I can only say that it feels right. It feels like the right thing for me to be doing right now, that I learned so much from the book. I learned so much from this podcast journey. And it feels like I'm, we're telling stories that aren't being told anywhere else. And somebody else is still, you know, doing the other work that I used to do. And that's okay, too. Heather, thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for sharing this time talking about the work that you're doing right now. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for the show. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. 
It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.